everybody this morning. You awake yet? Do you just need a straight, a straight uh, line of coffee directly into your mouth this morning? I don't blame you if you do. And uh, Let's go ahead and take our Bibles and turn to Romans chapter number 8 again as we're making our way through this book of the Bible, Romans chapter number 8. Uh, we're still talking about the Romans road to the Christian life and I hope this has been a helpful series to you, uh, introduce some truth to you maybe that uh, is new. If it isn't new, uh, just to reinforce uh, what it is we actually, um, how we actually operate in life. And we started over in Romans chapter number 6 uh, and have, are making our way through Romans chapter number 8, and we'll probably stop it there. Uh, just a quick announcement before I get started. Don't forget about the uh, remodeling. We're going to start after uh, the service today, so uh, you can hang around for a little bit for that. And uh, Rob will let you use a, any power tool of your choice, right, Rob? It doesn't, he's like, no, uh-uh. <laughs> He want to, yeah, we've got chainsaws and, you know, things. So I'm just kidding. We don't. Rob is going to only, he, he, he's still just shaking his head no, so I better just stop. <laughs> so uh, we're going to start that this afternoon, rip everything out. There is no Wednesday night service. I'm trying to get these out of the way just, you know, for the end. They were flashing on the screen beforehand. I don't know if you noticed that, but uh, we won't have a midweek service this week as a result of everything being torn apart. All right, so we've got the announcements out of the way, right? So Romans chapter number 8, uh, we're down into verse number 5 at this point. Last week we talked about what it meant to live under no condemnation. As Paul tells us in verse number 1, there's that now therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And uh, we're going to kind of continue on through verses 5 through 17 if we're fortunate. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on there. Uh, when my wife heard the printer going off this morning, she said it's taking way too long for those notes to come out, uh, which means you're going to preach way too long. So <laughs> I'm going to try to make sure that that doesn't happen. But look down with me in verse number 5, and this is where we're going to pick up. We're not going to read all, uh, all the verses down to verse 17. We'll just read verse number 8 and stop there. It says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, to the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So, uh, so then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's, look, let's read verse number 9, because this is important. He says, but you, now he's talking to the believers now. He just gave us some information, and now he's applying. He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he, that person, is none of his. So this morning what I want to talk to you about is this. I want to talk to you about the difference between living by the flesh and what that is and living according to the Spirit and what that means. You see, when we went into Romans chapter number 6, we began to look at how to not sin. Now, when I say how to, uh, some people get nervous. They're like, great, here it is, another list. Well, the how to of not sinning and the how to of not to do good things like we looked at in Romans 7 have nothing to do with lists. It has everything to do with receiving what's true and living from what's true. That's it. And that one truth is the work that Jesus has already accomplished on your behalf. You see, the gospel 
gospel is not just ethereal, it's not just theoretical, it's very applicable. You can take what the gospel says and it works out in your life, you see. And so that's what we're looking at. And as we move into Romans chapter 8 and we're learning what it means to live in freedom, there's this one idea that Paul needs to address, and that is this difference between a living according to the flesh and a living according to the Spirit. Now, let me just say on the onset, there's a difference between living according to the flesh and being in the flesh. If you are in the flesh, if a person is in the flesh, that person is not saved. All right, It is impossible to be saved and be in the flesh. But you can walk or you can live according to what the flesh used to be like. Uh, it's kind of like reaching back into old habits in order to deal with life. And we're going to look at what that means here in a minute. Uh, to be in the Spirit is to be saved. But just because you're in the Spirit doesn't mean you're necessarily walking according to the Spirit. And so that's what Paul's di- uh, differentiating for us here in these verses. Uh, so I want you to realize this. So this is kind of the purpose of the whole message. Uh, we need to realize that God has eternally connected us to His Spirit so that we might experience His life as our life. That's what he's talking about here. And I want to show you that because the Christian is in the Spirit, he or she has no obligation or reason to seek life and peace from the works of the flesh. There's no reason for it. The reason being is because not only do we have a different location spiritually, because of that we also have a different source of life now. And that's really what Paul's getting at here. Uh, I read a story about a, a missionary named uh, Hubert Jackson who was, uh, had retired from the field, and now he was teaching younger missionaries as they were getting ready to leave and go into a field. And he was telling them about uh, he, um, an instance where he was out on the mission field, and the local mission had given him a car to drive. But it was a really old car, uh, and he started, I'm just going to read the story. He says that in seminary class, uh, this uh, teacher was telling about a car that he had been assigned to drive that would not start without a push. I think I've owned that car before. Um, <laughs> He says, after he pondering the problem, he devised a plan. He went to the school nearest his home and got permission to take some children out of their class and have them push his car off as he made his rounds. He would park either park on a hill or on a uh, on an incline or leave the engine running when he made his visit. Uh, He used this procedure for two years until his uh, help forced him to retire, and a new missionary came out to take his place on the field. And Mr. Jackson began to tell him how he had contrived this plan in order to make this old jalopy of a car work. And he was very proud of the way that he had figured out how to make this thing work. Well, the newer missionary come up, and as he was explaining, you know, park it on the hill, pop the brake, pop the clutch, you know, and the car will start. The new missionary says, well, Mr. Jackson, as he pops the hood, I think the only problem is this loose starter wire here. He hooks it up, gets in the car, and it cranks right up, and he drove it off. (laughs) And uh, for two years, this guy was doing all this ridiculous stuff just to get his car to crank, right? And that sounds like kind of the mechanic skills that I have, you know. For two years, this guy is doing all this crazy stuff to get his car to operate, and yet it's still not operating properly. You know, it kind of reminded me a lot of, a lot of many believers out in the world. We have tried the Christian life in so many different ridiculous ways. And then so the Bible comes along and Paul says, this is how it actually works. And we're amazed at the simplicity of how God has laid out the Christian life. The Christian life is the Spirit of Christ living within you. It's His life as your life. You see, we try all these different things to make it work, don't we? 
They're like little rabbit's foot and lucky charms that we put all over. It's not the cereal, actual lucky charm, sorry. And, you know, we've got, we've got these little rituals that we go through in order to help us make it through the day. Or we live by these certain little mantras and things like that in order to help us overcome sin and do what's right. And we try to make all these habits to deal with the other habits that are defeating us when the Bible is clearly telling us that there is a new way to live that is found in a person that's already living in you, in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is explaining these two different ways of functioning. Uh, one way of functioning is called the flesh, and we're going to look at that here in just a minute. So let's just jump into it. We're going to look at the two different sources of living this morning. All right, the first one, obviously, according to our text that we just read in verses 5 through 8, is the flesh. Um, I don't mean um, this by... Uh, oh, let me back up my... I'm saying this in an incorrect way. I'll just define the flesh for you. Here is the flesh, all right? And we're going to get into what it means to live by the Spirit in just a minute. The flesh is the attempts we make by our own power and unrenewed thinking to meet the spiritual, physical, and emotional needs that we have in this life apart from Christ, all right? It's what we contrive up in order to gain a source of life or a quality of life that starts with you and I. Uh, and I like what Steve Eden says. He says, if you're at the center of your life, your life is off-center. And it's very true, isn't it? Uh, because if we are trying to gain life from ourselves or we're trying to gain life from another individual, after a while we'll wear that individual down and we'll become very frustrated. Uh, because God has never designed you and I to operate on a daily basis based on what somebody else can give to us or what we can get from somebody else or something else. The Bible does, uh, de describes the flesh this way. Now notice this, this phrase of the first. It's very interesting. He says, now the works are the f of the flesh are evident. You know what that means? You, there's really not a whole lot of explanation that needs to go into them. When we're living by the flesh or according to the flesh, if we're seeking something other than Christ as our source for living, these things are going to be evident. They're going to play out. It's going to be obvious that we're operating by the flesh when these things are very real in our lives. You see, good, bad, or ugly, one way or the other, the flesh is always going to show itself as flesh at the end of the day. Flesh is just that idea of even living from what's physical. Now, what did Paul say? Paul said, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. That's the same word for fleshly. He said, they're not carnal, but they're spiritual. You know, they're beyond us. They're beyond the physical. And so when we're operating by flesh, when we're living according to flesh, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, uh, jealousies. And, you know, every time I read that word jealousy in there, I think to myself, it feels out of place, doesn't it? Because all those other ones up to the word jealousy, you're like, man, those are, those are rough. You know what I mean? If those come on TV, you cover your kid's eyes up. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but jealousy, you know, what is that doing in there? You know what I mean? When I read those words and how they're all lumped in together, this tells me that any time I live according to the flesh, I may go to a great extremes to have my needs fulfilled, or I might have some kind of inward thing that I'm looking to to have my needs fulfilled. It can look disastrous, or it can actually look very respectable. You know what we call driven people, or jealous people sometimes? We call them driven, don't we? And if you're driven in culture, boy, you're the A personality, you're the leader, you're the number one guy, boy, I want this guy out there. If you're envious, they want you out front because you won't take no for an answer, you won't stop, you see. But the Bible says it's a work of the flesh, selfish ambition. 
I mean, what in the world is, are these things, dissension, heresies, envies? What are all these things doing in there lumped in with adultery, fornication, lewdness, and all that? What are they in there for? Because all these things are a result of us trying to meet our own needs. You know why adultery happens in a marriage? Because the person thinks that somebody else can meet a need for them. You know why fornication happens and among people's lives? Because they think that they have a hole that sexual gratification is going to fill from another individual. And on and on and on we could go, why, why do people hate? Why are they so consumed with hatred? Because they feel like they've been wronged and that somebody owes them something. And when we live from the flesh, we're living from this source. That's what we're living from if we live according to uh, the flesh. Because notice what it says in verse number 5 with me. He says, for those who live according to the flesh, and here's the key. It says they set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now, I like what Andy Stanley says when he says, you will eventually but not initially live out what you think. You will eventually but not initially live out what you think. You see, when we set our minds on the things of the flesh, it's only going to be a matter of time before the flesh shows itself real and begins to play out in our lives. Both the flesh, as it were, and the spirit both provoke a way of thinking in our lives that then in turns affect our behavior in our life. You see, because you will eventually do what you think, eventually. Eventually it comes out. Eventually we show our hands, don't we? Because we're just not good enough at playing those cards close to our chest for long. Before long, Nick's going to make me mad, and Nick is going to... Ri- he is too, by the way. He's working on it. Before long, something's going to happen. If I've got some kind of... If I'm living according to the flesh, Nick might do something to me, and I'm going to show my cards then. And Nick's going to say, yep, that's what I thought all along. There was something there. You see, the flesh, that phrase according to, you notice what it says in verse 5, live according to the flesh or live according to the spirit. That word according to gives the idea of water that trickles down in the Greek language. Um, It basically is telling us this, is that our mentality, our way of thinking is something we receive from our source. All right, now, this is, I never knew this. I've heard of the, I don't know if you've ever heard of a river, a river's headwaters, if you've ever given much thought to that. I haven't. Um, I got online and I looked at what the headwaters of the Mississippi River were like, and this is it. This is where the Mississippi River starts. Not very impressive, is it? Um, The Colorado River starts from this trickle that is only a couple of feet wide. It's actually pretty amazing. This is a lake up in uh, Minnesota, and uh, right here, these rocks, this is where that lake slowly spills over this little dam of rocks. And by the, it doesn't look very impressive, does it? Uh, there were other pictures of people walking across the rocks and standing all around it. Uh, this sign is actually there. Uh, 2,500 miles later, the Mississippi River looks a lot different, doesn't it? You go down to New Orleans. We were uh, in New Orleans for our anniversary, and uh, we walked into that little place where you buy the beignets. Uh, right after we had to get out of the way of the cops chasing a guy down to arrest him, we got our beignet. <laughs> Welcome to New Orleans and a happy anniversary. And then uh, we walked right up there on that boardwalk right by the river. I'm sure most of us have been out on that. And that, it's right there in that bend of the river, kind of right there. And that thing is huge, isn't it? I mean, it is just a massive river. It comes from this. That's where it starts. You see, the point that I want to make with this is this idea of living according to and the trickle-down effect of our source makes a huge difference over the long term. 
You see, a lot of times we think to ourselves, well, I know that I'm operating from this particular source in my life. And we really don't think much of it. I mean, right here, you can walk across the Mississippi River. But if you go down somewhere in Mississippi or near New Orleans, you're not walking across the Mississippi River. You know why? Because it has that the, by the time it dumps out into the Gulf of Mexico, that river has lived according to its source right here. And it widens. And it gets deeper. And it gets broader. You could dam it up here, but you're going to have a hard time damming it right in the middle. And so my point here is this. We can't think to ourselves that, oh, this, this flesh pattern that I'm allowing to go on really doesn't have a whole lot of effect on me. And it might not in the immediate, but you give it enough time and it's going to widen and it's going to deepen. And when it spills out, it is finally going to almost feel like it is unstoppable. You see, because the Bible says for those who live according to, they start by setting their minds on. You see, that's why it's very important what we think about. Because what we focus our minds on or is going to eventually spill out into our lives. The Bible tells us here about the Spirit in Galatians 5 and verse 22. And this is what I love about the Spirit. This is what I love about how God has stacked the deck in your favor. Because we don't want to make it sound like the flesh is more destructive than God is good. That's not true. Because we're graced, we're sin did abound. What's the Bible say? Grace did what? Much more. Right? So here's what God did. God has stacked the deck in your favor by giving you the indwelling Spirit of God if you've been born again. And it says that the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and goodness and those, those things there. Now, here's the interesting thing. If we back up, notice it says this. The flesh does what? It works, right? The works of the flesh. You know what that means? That you have to participate in manufacturing these things. They're mechanical as a result of neglect from listening to the Spirit. You and I can produce these things. And you know what? It's pretty easy. It doesn't take a whole lot of effort to produce these things. But notice what the Bible says here. It says the fruit of the Spirit. You know, what does that imply? That implies that these things are produced by something or someone, I should say, that is bigger than you. Fruit is the result of life. Works are just the result of movement, so to speak. It's just effort. You see, when it comes to the Spirit of God, the only way we can experience these things are not make a list of all these words. And this is what we've done in church, isn't it? We've listed love, joy, all that. We've listed and we say, all right, I'm going to start and I'm going to work on my love. And I'm going to love everybody. Well, that one's hard enough, but then you get down to joy and you let somebody cut you off in traffic. Zero joy, it's all gone. You know, peace. You balance your checkbook, peace has left the room. I mean, it dropped the mic and walked out. It says, we're done. There's no way you're going to make it another month. Long-suffering, do you have children? Thank you. All right? <laughs> Kindness, you know, and we can go on and on and on with these things. And we make a list, and we say, I'm going to work on these things individually. But they're not individual. Now, here, says, here speaks Buddy and not necessarily the Lord, okay? I believe there's really only one fruit of the Spirit. I think there's love, and that's it. The rest of these are a manifestation of love. All right, so I kind of describe it like an orange. If you peel back an orange, you've got a multitude of slices in it that make up that one orange. You know what I mean? And I think the fruit of the Spirit's that way. But see, you, can't, you and I can't just manufacture love. Because what God is saying to you and I is this. He's saying, I have given you myself so you can experience this fruit by my life. 
Now, we're going to get into how that works here in just a minute, but look at verse number 7. Or look at verse 6, excuse me. It says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is what? Life and peace. Now, that's what we want, isn't it? If even unsaved people want life and peace, they don't know how to get it, they don't know where to find it, but they want it. So the believer has to ask themselves, why am I not living with life, divine life? We could put that in parentheses in front of that word. And why am I not living with peace? Well, the reason why we're not is because we're not tuned in to the one that produces those things in our life. We've listened to self-help. You know, I've heard some really good self-help sermons. Or I guess they're sermons. I don't know. You listen to the self-help stuff, and there's a reason why they call it self-help. You realize that, right? It's not spirit help. It's self-help. And sometimes you just can't help yourself, all right? I mean, sometimes the problems are just so deep that you aren't going to fix yourself, so to speak. That's where these verses come in. Where we're focusing our minds on gaining our source for life from makes a huge difference. Because look at verse number 7. It says, For the carnal mind is an enmity against God. You know what that means? It means it's at war with God. I'm not saying you're at war with God. I'm saying that the way that we think when we live according to the flesh is in complete opposition to everything that Jesus Christ is in us. He says that it is, and this is, this is an interesting statement, he says, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. I wish every person that has a legalistic mindset could read that verse. Because if they are raising up the law, you know what they're doing? They're exposing how carnal their mind really can be. You see, and what happens here is we, if we live in verse number 7 and we say to ourselves, I am going to help myself and I am going to do better, we just made a list of our own individual laws and we said, I'm going to fulfill them. And you know what happens? They don't get fulfilled. And you know what? You live a very frustrated life because God is not calling you to make yourself better. He is calling you to just simply submit yourself to who Jesus Christ is. Because notice what he says in verse number 8. He says, So then those who are in the flesh cannot even please God. So a person that's unsaved is in a situation where they have no ability whatsoever by their behavior or who they are in any way for God to look at them and say, I condone what you're doing. What you do and who you are is A-OK with me. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't love them. It just simply means he doesn't condone what's happening. You see, the flesh in any form cannot raise, as it were, the pleasure of God. That's why we move down here into the next segment, the two truths about your identity. Notice what it says with me in verse number 9. He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. That's where you and I have to start. You see, if we tell ourselves that the flesh is a viable option for us, that's where we're going to go. Matter of fact, in a minute, he's going to tell us that we're not obligated to obey the flesh at all. He says, you're not in the flesh. Your identity is spirit. That's why it is so frustrating for you and I as believers when we walk according to the flesh because we're having an identity crisis at that moment. He says, you're not of the flesh. You're of the spirit. And he says this, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Now, let me say this about that verse right there. There are many litmus tests that many people in Christianity have put out there that will verify whether a person is or is not saved. All right? They say, well, if you do this, you're not saved. And if you believe that, you're not saved. And you go on and on and on and on with the list. 
The Bible clears it up. If you and I do not have the Spirit of God, we are not born again of God. That's the bottom line. You know why that's so important? Because if we look at people and determine whether or not they are or not are or are not saved based solely on behaviors, there's not going to be any standard. Everybody's behavior things are going to be different. You know, if you go up in North Carolina and some of the churches out there in the backwoods, they have uh, cigarette containers outside of the front doors of the churches. You know why? That's where they make Marlboro cigarettes. You put, a, you put a cigarette urn in front of a church in the south and you are going to have a knife fight to the death in the parking lot, all right? It is going to go... You're not saved if that happens. You see, even culturally, there are these differences. You see what I'm saying? And so what is God's standard? Now, here it is. God's standard for the assurance of salvation is himself. That's pretty easy. It's not you. It's not me. It's not how good you are or how good you want to be. God's standard for salvation is himself. If you do not have the Spirit of God, you are none of his. That's pretty easy, isn't it? You see, and a believer knows when they have him because they know that they have believed on the one that gives the Spirit of God. And so he says, listen, you're not in the flesh. You are in the Spirit. Your point of reference as a believer is who he is because he has made you what you are. Now look at verse number 10, because he says, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of what? Righteousness. The Spirit is what? Life. The Spirit is life. The flesh is not life. The Spirit is life. Living according to the flesh, as I said a minute ago, will create an identity crisis in the believer. In verse 9, what we just read, we see the who that determines your identity. Kind of sounds like a Dr. Seuss book if you're not careful, you know. The importance of the Christian's new identity in Christ is the subject matter of almost every book of the New Testament. Everything that Paul particularly wrote, the Pauline epistles is what we call them, the, the subject matter of what is happening there wraps around what, who Christ is, and who you are as a result of believing on Christ. And even all the behaviors wrap around the identity of the believer. You see, God doesn't start with do, He starts with be. He said, this is who you are. Now this is what we do as a result of who you are. A twisted identity is always determined from failure and success rather than the gospel. Now, what I mean by that is this, in verse number 10. When he talks about how the Spirit is life, if we have a wrong view of our identity, we will surmise our value based on everything that we've either done right or all the stuff that we've done wrong. You see, both of those are incorrect because identity is determined by what God says about you, not what you say about you. Because sometimes I have a wrong opinion of myself on the good and the bad end, so to speak. And so what does God say? He says the spirit is life. Notice what the Bible says about identity here in 1 Thessalonians 5. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. I get so tired of well-meaning people saying that Christians are in darkness. No, they're not. If a Christian is in darkness, they are unsaved and they are separated from the life of God, according to Ephesians 2. All right? A believer is in the light. Now, what does light do for you? Light exposes, doesn't it? Not only does it expose the darkness, 
but it also illuminates where you are. You see, as believers, because we're sons and daughters of the light and children of the day, we don't walk in a manner in which we can trip and fall as a result of our own knowledge. We walk in the light of the fact that Jesus Christ lives inside of us. So stop telling yourself that you don't know and stop telling yourself that you are not because you are everything that God says you are. Now that isn't to be cocky. That's actually very humbling because we didn't make ourselves any of that, did we? Notice what it says here in 1 John 4, 4. Just the first part of this verse, what it says here. You are of God. I have literally sat in church services and listened to pastors look at the congregation and say, you are not of God. I've literally heard these things. And we wonder why we're in a mess. We say that we believe the Bible in one hand, but yet we get up and we apply it in a completely contradictory method. We think that standing... For years, I thought me getting in front of you and telling you exactly how sorry you were was actually going to change you from being sorry. You know, I thought if I could just list as much of incorrect behavior as I possibly could, that somehow you're going to stop it. But you see, I turned the gospel into a behavior modification program rather than the good news of who Jesus Christ is and the change that he produces in you. You know, one of my desires for us as a fellowship of believers is this, is that we will never loosen our grip on the importance of gospel-saturated belief that everything starts with the finished work of who Jesus is and flows out of that. And that we never trade that for some kind of uh, just a performance-based oriented kind of identity that many times we get sucked into. You are of God. I want you to leave here believing that this morning. That as a believer you are, and that word of is that word ek that we've talked about beforehand. It means out from. You are out from God. When God saved you, The part of you that gives you the identity of a believer has come out from God, and you are of God. In verse number 11, it gets even better, because notice, I want you to see how your identity is displayed. Look what it says. He says, But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give what? Life. Will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So have you, ever, have you ever read that verse before? I mean, just stop and think about what it's saying. Because what it's saying here is this, is that life is displayed in you and through you by the same Spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, that's pretty powerful. Now, this morning, if you were to tell me that you could take my truck, my 2002 Ford Ranger, and it is a beast, let me tell you. I mean... When I, it sounds like it's driving much faster than it really is, you know. When I hit the gas, it does that, and I'd like pick up two miles an hour, you know what I mean. It's kind of like driving a Chevy, right, Rob? And <laughs> so if you, could t- if you were to tell me this morning that I could have my truck, and I like my little truck, and I could have that truck, and you could drop in there this massive, like, I don't know, Eric, give me a big motor. Come on, help me out. A 454 big block. Just boom, drop it in my Ford Ranger. I then would have the spirit of a 454 big block in my little Ford Ranger. Doesn't look impressive, but when I got on the freeway, trust me, I would, that's all I'd do with speed if I had a motor like that in the truck. You couldn't help it, you know. And what the Bible is telling us here in verse number 11 is that same power that impresses us so much in the resurrection of Jesus... 
that same person that was involved in Jesus being resurrected from the dead, that same person of the Godhead is the person that lives in you. Well, you know what that does for you and I? First off, it should make our anxiety levels go down. Because all of a sudden, we don't have to go and find something that we don't have. We don't have to go prep ourselves for something that we need. We are living from what God has already done for us. Now, let's look down here in verse number... I'm I'm sorry, I forgot my place after that one. (laughs) Look down in verse number 12. Let's move on here. Oh, let's look at this verse. This is a good one. Sorry, back over here. Then we'll look at verse 12, all right? Ephesians 1 and verse 19. And it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power... Now, notice this phrase. He says, That is toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. All of that comes from that phrase where it says, The greatness of his power towards you. Now, this is what I want you to picture that phrase as. That, fra- that idea of that phrase, toward us, I want you to picture yourself as a divine target. You're just holding a giant bullseye. And when God wants to release his power, so to speak, he aims it directly at you when he does so. You see, we don't believe that, though, do we? We believe that if I pray long enough, if I, mean, if I just grovel enough, God is going to release his power in me, you know? if I will just simply somehow punish myself long enough for all the stuff that I did for the last 10 years that completely jacked up my life and everybody's life around me, if I will just pay the price as a result of what I did, I will then get the power of God. You know what all that is? That's Christian karma. All right, That's all that is. All right? you, you get what you put out, so to speak. That's, that's Eastern mysticism. That is not Christianity. Because Christianity says you get the opposite of what you put out because of the work of Jesus. So let's not yin and yang Christianity, all right? Let's just take it for what the Bible says. And the Bible's telling you this, that the one that lived in you gave life to a dead body. So it can give life to your body right now. In verse number 12, let's look at the two conclusions, all right? Because in verse 12, Paul summarizes everything, and he comes to the application, and he says, Therefore, brethren... We are debtors, and just notice like a little parenthesis in your mind next. He says, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. He says, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bearing witness with our spirit that we're the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together with Him. Now God establishes confidence and security in the sufficiency of His work for us. And now we have this question that turns up in our minds as we read these verses. While the Spirit of God has us, and we understand that, are we allowing the Spirit of God... Are we allowing the Spirit to have us? I think I said that wrong. He has us. Are we yielding ourselves to Him is basically what I'm saying here. Because the Bible's telling us this. He makes all these statements of confidence through these verses. He's saying you are a son of God because you have the Spirit of God. If you're a Spirit of God, then you're an heir of everything that God has. And he's saying that you can call out to God and call Him Father. He's, He's giving us all these confident statements. 
So the question we have to ask ourselves is this, is what is keeping us from yielding ourselves to the leadership and the work of the Spirit in our lives on a daily basis? Well, one of the things is, is, to be quite honest with you, we really are convinced that we can make the proper decision. We're just convinced of it. We're convinced that we've got this thing figured out to an extent. And so what we do is we kind of rely on our own thinking and our own strength rather than anything else. And we ignore the fact that in verses 12 and 13, the Bible tells us here that we can't even make our, ourself free. The Spirit makes us free. I, th- I like to think of this whole idea of living by the flesh, and I may have told you this before, about have you ever been out on a farm that has cattle? They have a lot of cows. Cows tend to walk in the same path everywhere they go. You know what I mean? Uh, if there's a water trough, they walk the same path to that water trough. Even if it's a ridiculous path, they will still take it because they can see it in front of them. And that's what it's like when it comes to us living by the Spirit. We're so used to living according to the flesh, we're used to taking that one path. And then God comes along and He deviates our path. He says, walk over here. And we look down and we don't see the rut cut out. You know what I mean? Jesus put it this way. You know, narrow is the path that leads to life and broad is the path that leads to destruction. You see what I mean? And so we're so used to seeing things cut out one way, the Spirit of God comes to us, and He says, listen, you're not a debtor to live according to the flesh, but we're so used to living in a form of indebtedness that being free actually kind of scares us a little bit. Because at least now we know what we're getting into if we live according to the flesh. When we start living according to the Spirit, boy, it kind of it feels like it gets hairy there, doesn't it? So what does God do? He comes to you and I and He says, Listen, if you really want to live, you will live according to my Spirit. If you really want to experience death, you'll walk according to the flesh. You see, verse number 13 is a true statement whether we want to believe it or not. It's got a positive and a negative, just like your car. Your car doesn't work without a positive and a negative, does it? It's got to have the positive truth and the negative truth for it to run. And so what the Bible's telling us here is this, or let's put it the way Warren Wiersbe put it. He has a good quote. It kind of sums it up better. Warren Wiersbe said, The Spirit puts to death the things of the flesh and puts, gives life to the things of the Spirit. Verse number 13, notice that with me, when he says, If you live according to the trickle-down method of the flesh, you'll experience death. Here's a verse over in Colossians 3 and verse 4. It says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear then you also will appear with him. Therefore, put to death your members which are upon the earth. And he gives a list here, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. It's interesting how he starts this verse out with the fact that you have life. That Christ, because Christ is our life, is what he's saying in this verse, put to death these things. You see, the Spirit of God not only gives you life to operate, but it also gives you power to put things to death, these things that are listed here. In verse number 14, look down there with me, and I'm trying to finish up here. I got like, uh, that clock is actually wrong. All right, so exactly. Don't look at yourself. No, don't look at the clock. That's sin. That's sin to look at the clock in church. It's abomination. In Leviticus, you're not supposed to, it says, thou shalt not look upon the clock when it turneth the hour. All right, so you're not supposed to look there. Yeah, that's, that's an actual Bible verse, I promise. <laughs> For the kids' sake, I'm not going to tell anybody that it isn't, okay? Look at verse number uh, 14 with me. He says, For as many, now here it is, For as many are as led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. So not only does the Spirit free you, the Spirit also is in fellowship with you. 
You see, one of the big things I think that we as believers are missing is this, that it is a hard thing to get God to lead you. We, we kind of feel like we've got to meet some criteria before God's actually going to begin to lead us. But notice in verse number 14, your birth, your new birth, gives you the right, gives you the uh, entrance into God's ability to lead you. So don't think to yourself, man, I wish God would lead me. No, no, think to yourself, God will lead me. God is leading me. You have the right to be led because you're a son or a daughter of God at this point. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, this verse used to scare me to death. Have you ever read this one before? And you were like, holy smokes. You know, a lot of people read this verse and they just equate it with not being saved anymore. Or they read this verse and they equate it with not being right with God anymore, you know. It doesn't say any of those things. All it simply says is this. Don't quench the spirit. And we think to ourselves when we quench the spirit, we go down and we rob Wells Fargo. That quenches the spirit, you know. We quench the spirit when we cheat on our taxes, you know what I mean? When the Bible talks about not quenching the spirit, you know what it means? It means always stay tuned in to the spirit. Quenching the spirit is not you being so bad that the spirit's disgusted with you and he leaves you. That's not what it means. What it means is this, is that we are attuned to something else other than the Spirit, and when we are, we quench His effects in our life. We quench His fruit in our life. When we're living according to the flesh, you know what we're doing? We're quenching any and everything the Spirit possibly wants to produce in our life because we're swapping life for death. In verse number 15, notice what it says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. So this fellowship promotes leadership. It also promotes love. You will not get close to a person that you don't think loves you. You're not going to do it. Even if you think a person likes you a little bit, you're still not going to completely open up to them. You see, what God is trying to establish with you and I is this, is that you have right to access God in a way that is more intimate than religion gives you the idea of. You see, because that word Abba is pretty interesting, and we're not talking about a cheesy 70s band, all right, when we talk about Abba here, all right? What we're talking about is a very, it's a very you know, intimate term of endearment that a child would call the father. When I was growing up, I called my dad daddy. That's just what I called him. Some people call him dad. I remember I had a friend in high school. He referred, and I'm not saying if you did it, it's wrong. It just kind of felt different to me. It felt so formal. He referred to his parents as mother and father. And when they would talk, he would say, Mother, why have you done this? Father, why? And I'm like, what do you, you sound like you're in court. You know, I'm not saying that it's wrong. I guess Southerners, were more loose with our vernacular, which you know. And, uh, you know, I always thought it was strange. It sounded so proper, you know what I mean, and so official. And what, G, what the Bible comes along here, and it gives us the same access to the Father as Jesus had to the Father. We can look at the God of the universe and we can call him Daddy. You see, it's important for you to know that. If you don't realize how intimate your relationship with the Father really is, you're going to sink intimacy somewhere else. You're going to say to yourself, I've got to find this deep internal, this internal need that I have to be known and to be loved for who I am. I'm going to find that somewhere. If you and I don't know that we can't receive that from God, we'll try to suck it out of somebody else. The Bible tells us here in Galatians 4, 6, and because you're sons, a second time in Scripture, 
God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your heart, crying out, Abba, Father. Now, that is interesting. You know why? The Bible says that the spirit has to come into us and tell us, Abba, Father. You see, it's not something we know naturally. It's not something we just learn uh, just because we read a book once. You know, it makes me think about how important and powerful relationship is to God. And we often mistake the voice of the accuser for the voice of the Holy Spirit. And in churchianity, we actually promote the voice of the accuser as the voice of the Holy Spirit. I mean, when you sit in a gathering and you hear God say things to you or you feel this, this saying to yourself, uh, a real Christian would never, and you fill in the blank. You hear things like, you're not even saved, or God doesn't like you, or you're a disappointment, or what you can do is not enough. Folks, I'm telling you, the Holy Spirit of God does not use guilt to manipulate your behavior. That is not the voice of the Spirit. That's the voice of the accuser. You know why? Because the voice of God is securing. The voice of God is healing. Uh, The voice of God is empowering. And the voice of God says everything on the basis of truth. And can you imagine after the things that we have actually done in our lives that the Spirit of God would come inside of us and promote the idea, or the truth, I should say, that God is our daddy. That's an amazing thought that we can have that type of relationship. You see, when it comes to this idea of the flesh and the spirit, it it reminded me of a Facebook meme, which is always dangerous, you know. We've all heard that saying that, you know, grass is greener on the other side. I read one the other day that said this, grass is always greener on the other side because it might be astroturf, you know. (laughs) You know, and the flesh is like that. The flesh is like astroturf. You look at it and you say, wow, that'll fulfill my need. That'll take care of this longing that I have. And we step over into that side of the yard and you know what we determine? It's not even real. It has no substance to it whatsoever. There's no life there. It's only manufactured. You see, the flesh is just artificial life. It is a manufactured material. And by, it cannot naturally produce life and fruit. The flesh kills and the life gives, or the spirit gives life and peace. So, my challenge to you this morning is this. Are you willing to acknowledge where you're living according to this flesh? Are you willing to acknowledge that? Are you willing to just simply before God say, I see where my flesh pattern is right here. Here it is. Because that's pretty difficult for us to even admit, isn't it? Because we don't want to admit the fact that what we've got going on is not working. You know, because then we look like a failure, right? So we've got to double down on the failure. That always works. I mean, it's worked for me for 38 years, you know. Are you willing to acknowledge where you're living by the flesh and just yield yourself to the Spirit in that that area? Are you allowing that, that, that thought pattern that God is constantly bringing up to your mind saying, what about this? You're thinking this way. You're thinking this way. Are you willing to release that and yield yourself to the Spirit of God? One of the most freeing things that we will ever do is look at God and say, God, you can tell me whatever you want to tell me. You can do whatever you want to through me because only through the Spirit comes life and peace. What's